Let's come back together and find our seats. Thank you for braving the torrential downpour in Southern California and being here. Isn't that what we think whenever we get like a drizzle? I um, I want to start by reading parts of an email um, this morning. And before we get into the Word, before we get into First and Second Thessalonians, I want to thank you as a church for your response to Horizon Pregnancy Clinic last week. And your response to the heart of God for the, for the needy, for the defenseless, and just some of the emails I've gotten this week of people taking a little bit more of a bold stance or a little bit um, rejecting passivity and doing something about it has been heartwarming. But I also got an email from Horizon this week, um, Pastor Andrew and I did. And in, in light of our theme of celebrating this year, I think we need to celebrate when God is doing things, right? And that's, that's scriptural, it's commanded in scripture. And we're in the middle of our baby bottle campaign. Next week, if you can bring your, your bottles filled with the, the coins and stuff, we'll pass those on to Horizon. Um, but Deborah, the director at Horizon, said, your monthly gift of $60 a month, because we also support them out of our budget with $60 a month, it pays for Horizon to offer two prescriptions of the abortion pill reversal. And, and so each month we are paying for a couple of those prescriptions. That's something new that Horizon is doing. Um, they had their first client this week um, that was dealing with an abortion pill. And um, they were able to see the baby was still viable, so she started on the antidote as soon as possible right there in the office. Um, she'll come weekly until she is 12 weeks. And, and the prescriptions cost 30 bucks for 10 days, but our support of them is giving them a supply of these things. And this week, a baby was saved because of that. And that, um, that is worth celebrating. I, I would say that, that uh, life saved is definitely worth celebrating what God is doing. So thank you. Thank you for that. Today we start a new series. And the, the first week of a new series, a new book of the Bible, is always an introductory week where we get to look at maps and background and history and all those things that some of you just geek out over, which is awesome, because I sort of like it too, especially when I get to do maps. Um, and, and it's important to understand. But first, before I get into that, I have a confession. I am a horrible father. It's true. My kids are like, where is he going with this? <laughs> I am not going to have to pay you a dollar for using you in an illustration without telling you. Um, <laughs> I am a horrible father. My kids are 12, 13, and 15, and they are still living at home. <laughs> I, I have not trained them well to have a job and be on their own yet. I, I am still having to feed them a lot. And... Um, <laughs> I, I, I failed. I, I, there's still things they don't know. They're not ready for life yet. And, and in fact, we may not launch them for another year. <laughs> They're like, wait a minute here. Does that make me a, a horrible father? No, why not? Because, because there's things that we have to do to launch our kids, right? There's things that have to be taught. There's ages that have to be reached. We've got to get through school. There's little things like jobs and, and things that support themselves that have to happen. And so we're in the middle of that process, not at the end of that process. Imagine, though, if I was to go home and kick my kids out tomorrow and say, we're done. Mom and I want to go on vacation 
and uh, we're retiring from the parenting thing. There you go. Then you would think of me as a horrible father, right? Because we're not done. Now imagine what, what Paul is going through as we come to First Thessalonians. You're probably wondering, where is he going with this? The tie-in, and as we look at the history, this is going to become more clear. The tie-in is Paul founded, he planted the church at Thessalonica. And he started this church, and he had intentions of teaching them what they need to get going in this city, what they need to launch well in this city. And that launch got prematurely terminated. And so he had to leave an immature church that was not ready to stand on their own, that he had fathered. And so as a father, he is feeling all those things that you would feel if your kids were ripped out of your home in their early teens and they weren't ready for life yet. And he's feeling all of the angst that goes with that and, and dealing with that as he has moved on and had to been, been forced to move on to other ministries. And so when we come to First and Second Thessalonians, we see letters from a dad to a church he planted that he cares very deeply about and, and letters to help them launch and to help them figure out where to go from here. And so we want to look at some of this today. We're going to look at one verse out of 1 Thessalonians. We're going to then spend some time in Acts so we understand the history. And we're going to take this launching concept and and the history here and try to understand the situation so we can fully understand what Paul writes and why he writes it. Now this is a, a book, these two books of the Bible are just so pertinent for any believer. Because you see in the title of the the series, Essentials of a Life Pleasing to God, Paul is going to basically describe how can you live in a way, while you're waiting for Christ's return, how can you live in a way that brings pleasure to God? Now, just as we get started, think about that concept for a moment. This This has been blowing my mind this week. That you and I, the Bible says, can bring pleasure to the Almighty God who is all-powerful, created the world with a word, created the universe, the expanse of the universe, and how many millions of stars there are, billions of stars, created all this with a word, and you and I can please Him by how we live. That speaks to the relational aspect of God. And that's where we're going to dig into when we come to first in Second Thessalonians over the next few weeks, maybe a little few months. Turn with me to the First Thessalonians one. First Thessalonians one, chapter one, verse one. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab a black one from under the seat right around you, and um, turn. It's in the um, second half of the New Testament, toward the end of the book, and we'd love for you to keep that if you don't have a Bible at home. But First Thessalonians one. And what we have in this verse is a pretty standard greeting. Letters of the time almost always or often followed the same sequence. You would have the author of the letter first, who it was to, and then some sort of greeting. Sometimes that greeting would incorporate some of the the summary of the book. I love this way of doing things. I think we should all start our letters by this is who it's from, because that at the end makes no sense. Uh, You know, do you read, do you know who your emails are from before you read them? Yeah. You don't read the email and then say, oh, I wonder who that was. It makes no, the con, so they, they had it right. And so they're going to start with who it, who it was that wrote it and then who it's to and then a little bit of a greeting. And, and in verse one here, we have that same thing. And I want to use that this morning as a launching pad to digging into the history. 
So the greeting in verse 1 says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. A simple greeting, very Pauline, and a wonderful way to start his letter. A couple things you notice. The first you notice is who it's from, the author, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. And these three were part of the church planting team that helped found the church. Paul is the main author, and he's including a couple of the people that were ministering with him. Silvanus, often you'll see is Silas. So this is if same name. Some of you guys go by a couple names, so don't judge. But um, Silvanus and, and Silas are the same person. And Timothy then, we know Timothy was a, a um, someone that Paul was mentoring, a child in the faith to Paul. And so these three are the authors. Paul visited Thessalonica on his second missionary journey. And if you remember, he took Silas with him on the second journey because he and Barnabas had a disagreement over John Mark. Remember that in Acts? He and Barnabas were together on the first missionary journey, had a disagreement. And so Barnabas went his way and Paul took Silas and they went up through Asia Minor and, and they started planting churches there. And so during that second ministry, missionary journey, one of the first places they stopped was where Timothy lived. And so Timothy had come to know the Lord and Timothy had chosen to then be an understudy or uh, have Paul mentor him and they took care of some things that would help his ministry. And so Timothy joined them. And so you have a team here, a team approach to ministry where Paul then goes on his way. And and a little bit of the history that will lead into the Acts passage we'll talk about. As they were going on their way, they came to Philippi, and, and actually an angel called them to Macedonia, but they came to, to Philippi, planted the church there. And if you remember, this is where the Philippian jailer, they were thrown in jail, and the Philippian jailer came to know the Lord because in the middle of the night, Silas and Paul are singing hymns and just a, a wonderful miracle. Well, immediately after Philippi, they continue down the main trade route, pass a couple of other towns, and end up in Thessalonica. And so in, in terms of where we're at in history, we have Paul, Silas, and Timothy planting this church in Thessalonica. Um, some debate of whether Timothy was there or not. I think he was because he was there right before Thessalonica, right after it. But he was the junior member of the team and didn't get a lot of words about him. And so these three are a team that was, was sent there to plant this church. I love even right from the start, Paul's the primary author. Paul is the apostle here. Paul could say, this is from me, the best apostle or the, the, the most powerful apostle or the apostle that, that Jesus has given the, the credibility to, to write this. And he just says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. And we see him bringing along the other guys in ministry, bringing a team approach to ministry. We see his humility here. And a great example of team leadership. And just a sub-point away from First and Second Thessalonians, when we see how Paul does ministry, and when he sees that he is always mentoring, bringing other guys along in a team approach, we can learn something there. Not to be solos in ministry, but to always be looking to bring others and mentor others, to lift others up in ministry. God is pleased when we do that. Timothy later, actually coming into 1 Thessalonians, he's going to be sent back to Thessalonica to find out what's going on and to get a good uh, get a report. 
And he comes back to Paul, gives the report, and then Paul writes first and then second Thessalonians. So right from the start in verse 1, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, the authors. To the church of the Thessalonians is, is the audience here. And so there we have to start to understand, okay, church of Thessalonians, what about Thessalonica? That's the city name. Um, what about that makes it special? Why did Paul choose, or why did God, the Holy Spirit, um, choose to have Paul plant a church here? And so we want to dig into the, the city of Thessalonica a little bit and understand it. When we think of Thessalonica, do we have that map up there? Thessalonica is at the top here. I get to use a laser pointer. Uh, it's at the top here. This is Greece. And so you have Corinth down here, Athens down here. And it's up here right on this natural harbor, okay? And so this became one of the major trade routes to bring trade from the sea into everything above. And actually everything to the west and to the east also would generally run through Thessalonica because one of the major trade routes, in fact, the major east-west trade route was the Ignatian Way. And this connected Rome to Asia. It was the route to connect Rome to Asia. And so you had all the major trade coming in here. You had major trade going this way. And there actually was a trade route. This was not, not as big as the Ignatian Way, a trade route going north. So this was an incredibly strategic place. Now think about if, if, if you're God, don't run with that too far, but if you're God and you're thinking, how do I strategically plant a church? Wouldn't it be wise to put a church at the major crossroads where people are going to come into the go- come into contact with the gospel from Rome, Asia, to the north, to the south? This is an incredibly strategic placement of the church. And so God knew what he was doing to send Paul there. This city also was the capital of Roman Macedonia. So it's the capital of Macedonia, all of this area. And it was known as a free city because they had helped with the war early on. They had come into favor with Rome. And so they were a free city that wasn't under all of the same regulations from Rome. And they were allowed to self-rule. And so the people from within the city could rise up and um, they were given special treatment. So this is probably, some would say, the most important city in the region of the time. And that's the city where Paul is, is starting this church. An incredible opportunity. Population, some estimates. Now, none of us were there. I know my kids think I'm old. I was not there. Um, population, maybe between 100,000 and 200,000 people. Some were there. So that is a large population for a city of the time. When cities often were 5,000 people, big cities were 20,000 people, a hundred to 200,000 this was a major metropolis, okay? The most populous town in all of Macedonia. It was the place to be. You had a seaport where you had all of those travelers coming in. You had all of those sailors coming in. You had all the traders coming on the route. And so it was known for having things to entertain sailors and entertain travelers. So it was known for gambling, for brothels, for other things that we just would not view as pleasing to God. But that was the culture of the time because it was the place to be. It was the center of social life in the area. Probably not like Garden Grove. Think more like New York. Think of of New York with all the lights and the glitter and the glamour. That would be what Thessalonica was like. 
Now, that was all helpful for me because I was picturing Thessalonica as this little five, ten thousand person town off to the side somewhere. But this is a major center of activity. It was also a fairly international city. There were people from all kinds of races there because you had, you had people coming in that would settle down. Hey, this is nice. I like it. It's a beautiful city. If you, it's one of the only cities or one of the few cities in the Bible that exists all the way from their time to today. And so now there's Thessaloniki, which is a resort destination, a vacation destination. I thought of showing you some of the pictures there, but then I'm like, no, everyone will want to go there. And that's not what it was like back then. Um, and, and, but it was a fairly international city, and we'll see that even in the text, Jews and Gentiles were able to live together just fine and get along just fine. But it was a secular city. And even in the religious setting, they had something for everyone. You could go there and find a religion you wanted to, to serve. You could find a place to go. There was a synagogue for the Jews. There were temples. They were into the empire worship or the emperor and and making sure you supported the emperor of Rome. They were into the whole Greco-Roman mythology and the pantheon, you know, Zeus, Jupiter, Apollo, Hercules, all of that. They had all of that going on. And so you could go anywhere and worship any way you wanted, but they did not have a Christian church. And there were not believers here because they had not heard the gospel yet. The Egyptian gods had temples. And so we have a a secular place that was international in scope that had all kinds of religious stuff, but it was just what you would do, what you would go to. It wasn't actually a very religious town. It just had ways to celebrate religions, you might want to say. Even even back, the, the history of Thessalonica is interesting. It started out being named Therma. And, and with Therma, you could, you could probably picture, if you start to think of it, they had hot springs. Therma, hot. And so it was known for its hot springs. But then it was later renamed the Thessalonica because of the half-sister of Alexander the Great. You know, some little guy in history. Alexander's great half-sister was named Thessalonica. And actually one of his generals was married to her that was ruling that region. And what better way to earn favor with your wife than to name a city after her? So if we can have the city of Susie, that would be awesome. <laughs> so, so that's the history. Do you, do you get a taste of this town? This is not Podunk. This is a big city, big influence, lots of opportunity here, but very secular, a very difficult place to start a church. Uh, and we have places in the United States like that. Church planners will say the Pacific Northwest is incredibly, Seattle area is incredibly hard to start a church in that area because it's so dark and, and it's so secular and people are steeped in that. You know, the, the New England states often has been described like that because there's such a history there of abandoning religion that now it's like, oh, that's not the thing to do. We wouldn't want to do that. And just very secular so we, we can read this and we can read the history of Thessalonica and we're like, yeah, we understand that today. This is not something extraordinary. This is something we are still de- dealing with today. One historian, speaking of the longevity of Thessalonica, said, so long as nature does not change, Thessalonica will remain wealthy and fortunate because of where it was in the trade routes, because of where it was with a natural harbor that was perfect for bringing in goods. So how did the church start there? 
what did God do? Our theme this year is remembering what God does and celebrating it. Even the story of how this started and how it thrived is an amazing story. So if you want to, if you want to hold on to first Thessalonians one, that, that is the only verse we're going to do there, but I want to turn over to Acts 17. Acts 17, and so many times when you're studying the New Testament and you're studying the epistles, it is helpful to go back to Acts and look at the history, right? Because the history helps us understand the writing and helps us understand the purposes of the writing. So in Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 10, we've just left Philippi um, with, with Paul and Silas and Timothy, and now they come to Thessalonica and we get the story of the birth of this church. Of, of the founding of this church. Starting in verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. And so they, they actually passed a couple towns because the Holy Spirit's leading them to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in and as was his custom and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And if you remember, the Christ there is actually a technical word for Messiah. And so Paul here, this is what he did at every city. He always looked to, to come in and try to work through the synagogue, try to reason with the Jews and bring them to Christ. And he spent three Sabbaths there, and he's explaining, he goes, even the Old Testament points to Jesus. They had this idea that we talked about and Pastor Andrew talked about at Christmas time that the Messiah would come as a military leader. He would wipe Rome out, bring peace, and everything would be perfect on earth. And Paul's saying, well, no, that's not what the Old Testament actually said. The Old Testament said the Messiah would suffer. The Old Testament said that by his stripes we would be healed, and that's talking a spiritual healing. The Old Testament said that Jesus would have to suffer, the Messiah would have to suffer to pay for our sins. And so he's sharing the gospel. He's sharing the gospel out of the Old Testament. It's beautiful. And, and, and people can't necessarily refute it because like when we went through Isaiah 53, there is no way to come away from that without saying that's Jesus. And we need Jesus. We need a Savior. So much so that synagogues today won't even teach Isaiah 53 because it, it's so convincing. And so Paul, this is a strategy. Paul was brilliant in, in his rhetoric and able to do this. He goes into the Sabbath. He reasons with them from scriptures. He's explaining that Christ had to suffer. The Messiah had to suffer. He explains that he's going to rise from the dead. And all this is prophesied. And he's saying, this was the Messiah. Jesus was the Messiah and you missed him. But there's hope. You can follow him now. And in verse 4, And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. And so Paul's ministry, he goes in and he's seeing results like this. We, we don't always see those kinds of results when we share the gospel. That's up to the Holy Spirit. We just obey and share and the Holy Spirit brings results when he's ready. And here the response is boom, boom, boom. A lot of Jews are coming to Christ, or some Jews. A lot of Greeks, a lot of Gentiles are coming to Christ. There's debate of what it means by devout Greeks. Were these ones that had converted to Judaism? We don't know, but we know that they're Gentiles that are now following Christ. And Paul makes a great statement that said, a lot of the leading women, he says, not a few of the leading women, which means a lot of the leading women came to Christ. They're hearing the gospel. They're understanding. People are responding in this secular 
pagan city where it would be hard to walk with God. It would be hard to change what you think. Now, there's, there's a little bit of debate of how long Paul was actually there. I think there's probably some time in verse 4 and 5 to where he wasn't just there three weeks. We know that the Philippians were able to send a couple gifts to him while he was in Thessalonica. And so it looks like he was there a little longer, but after three weeks he was done in the synagogues because they, those that were going to accept it accepted it. In verse 5, though, we see the result of this. Keep in mind, Jews are coming to Christ. Gentiles are coming to Christ. Leading women that Judaism would have been upset about getting a prominent role in the church are coming to Christ. And so the Jews now, in verse 5, the Jews start to notice. They start to notice. It's like the, the, the campaign that suddenly comes in forth. Because they're like, oh no, other people are getting more popular. And so the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. You're like, Jason? Where did Jason come from? Jason was a local that had come to Christ that was, that was housing Paul and Silas and Timothy and showing them hospitality. And so the Jews are like, we can't stand for this. Our, our reputation is dropping. Uh, quite frankly, it's about power. Our power and influence is dropping. We have to stop the outsiders. There's no discussion of what is true here or what is right. It's all about personal power. And so they form this mob and they're like, well, if we go right after Paul and Silas and Timothy and people are following them, that might be a problem. We're going to go after the place where they're staying. And we're going to, to make this personal. And so they, they lie to some of these men. They're wicked men. They form a mob. They're getting other people going. And their goal is to take out or to remove Paul and Silas and Timothy from town. And so they go to Jason, seeks to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not, they, they attacked the house of Jason. And they are, they are going after Paul at this point as well. And, and they, they could not find them, it says in verse 6. When they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers, some of the people that have turned to Christ, before the city. Before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And so they drag the believers out and say, the people you're following, they're turning the world upside down. It's a problem. You need to stop. And they're punishing them for that. Just as an aside... Oh, that every one of us would be described this way as men and women that turn the, ups, the world upside down for Christ. That's not, that, that, that's not a, a negative comment. They think it is. But I'm like, that's a positive comment. This world is already turned upside down. This world has fallen. This world is messed up. If we can come in and turn this world upside down, we're doing something right, village. And we're, we're, we're standing for Christ. And so they're standing for Christ. Verse 7, and Jason has received them and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar saying that there is another king, Jesus. And so the Jews, ironically, the Jews are appealing to Caesar. Um, the Jews are saying, no, 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 no. They, they are actually defiling emperor worship. They are saying the emperor isn't the king anymore. They're saying Jesus is the king. Sound like the cross? Does this all sound familiar? The arguments haven't changed because they've got nothing. And so they're just trying to appeal to a way that they think the authorities will take notice of. Because if you go against the emperor, you die or you get punished. 
And so they're going with where they think the authorities are going to respond. And sure enough, verse 8, and the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they posted bail, um, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. They start all over in the next town. That is the setting of the founding of the church at Thessalonica. Paul comes in. Paul, Silas, and Timothy preach the gospel. A lot of people respond. They maybe spend a little bit of time there sharing what it means to to follow Christ, what a church looks like. Imagine if you were in a group of people that came to Christ that had never seen a church before, that had never read the Bible before, that are steeped in the secular culture. How do you tell them how to live for Christ? That's not a two-week job right? You, you have to tell them how to live for Christ. You have to teach them what church looks like, what leadership looks like. You have to teach a whole different set of morals that aren't even based on legalism, but are based on a love for God and the creator. You have to teach all of these things. And Paul and Silas and Timothy are teaching it and they're working with them and showing them how to live for God. And then boom, they have to leave. And do you see why I started the way I did? where they're interrupted in fathering this church. They're interrupted in passing on things. And so now they have to leave these baby Christians with an incomplete knowledge of what it means to walk with God. And they pray and they hope that this church survives in this pagan city. And I feel this. When I think of my kids and if they were ripped out of my home now, I feel this. And I can understand what Paul is saying. Now, the difference here and where Paul takes comfort, and we're going to see this, is it wasn't just up to Paul whether this church survived. Because when believers accept Christ, when we accept Christ, the Holy Spirit comes and indwells us and teaches and secures us. And so whether this church survived or not wasn't up to whether Paul said the exact right things in the few weeks he had there. And Paul is going to rest in that. And he's going to trust God and trust that the Holy Spirit continues this work. And so they have to leave. They have to leave with incomplete teaching of what it means to live a life pleasing to God. What it means to live as a Christian, and it's very different from living in this world. He's also leaving a a church that is under opposition, right? That's why he had to leave. And so people are already against all the believers. They already have arrested them. They've had to post bail. They're already defamed because they were helping these weirdos, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. And so the church, as its starting point, doesn't really have fertile soil, but soil that is in opposition to them. And so you can see Paul's concern. If you read on in Acts, and we won't do that, I'll summarize. If you read on in Acts, the group went on to Berea. And they had successful ministry in Berea, starting in the synagogues, preaching the gospel, people coming to, to, to Christ. In fact, the Bereans were into Scripture and testing everything and seeing, is this true, what Christ is saying? And then from Berea, um, again, the Jews in Thessalonica that were not that far away, maybe... I, I 30 miles, I think it was. I may be wrong on that, but something like that. Um, In Berea, they're seeing people come to Christ. The Jewish group from Thessalonica hears about this because you're on a trade route, right? 
And they're like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. No, 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 no. These, these are troublemakers. So they get their mob together and say, let's take a road trip to Bria. And they do the same thing all over again in Bria. Turn people against them. Get Paul kicked out of there. So from there, Paul actually left first. He's able to leave Silas and Timothy because they're, they're not the face of the preaching and the face of the movement. He leaves them to help in an underground way the church there. And Paul goes down to Athens. So just again, our map, Thessalonica is where they are because they came this way from Philippi on the Ignatian Way. So when Paul, gets, Paul, Silas, and Timothy get kicked out, they come on over down the um, trade route a little bit more to Berea. They're ministering there. Paul is about to be killed there. So he now gets escorted by the Bereans down to Athens. Okay? And he leaves Silas and Timothy up here to continue the work. Again, a beautiful picture of working together as a team and, and why it's important to work together as a team. We're probably already three to five months after Thessalonica, okay? So remember, they didn't just hop in their car. These trips took time. And so um, Paul is now down in Athens. He sends um, for Timothy and Silas down in Athens and says, as soon as possible, come join me. So they end up coming down and joining him in Athens. But it is such a burden on Paul's heart at this point of what is happening with Thessalonica. We were having good ministry there. We built relationships there. We lived in Jason's house. And he can't get it off his heart because he cares for them, because he loves them. And so at this point, he sends Timothy back. And again, I think because he's the junior member of the team, he's able to go back and able to go in because it was Paul and Silas that took the brunt of the opposition. Um, Silas goes up into the area, maybe to Philippi to check on another um, church. We don't have record of that. But Timothy is sent back to Thessalonica because Paul is like, how's my church doing? You know, if, if you sent your kids off at 12, 13, and 15, you'd probably want to know how they're doing. I hope so. Otherwise, you're a bad parent. Um, (laughs) So he's checking on them. He sends Timothy. Timothy comes back to Paul, comes back to Athens. Paul's moved over to Corinth at this point. So um, from Athens, Paul went to Corinth. He spent 18 months in Corinth. And we talked about that when we studied 1 and 2 Corinthians. 18 months of fruitful, wonderful ministry in Corinth. And so Timothy after coming from Thessalonica, comes down, and I don't know whether he went by sea or whether he went by land, but he comes and finds Paul in Corinth, and he gives a status update on this church that Paul loves. And I can just picture Paul like, well, how are they doing? How's it going there? Is the church still there? Is it even still alive? How's Jason doing? And, and, and Timothy gives a report and says, things are good. Things are good in Thessalonica. A couple of issues we have to work through. They, they, they don't quite understand Jesus' the second coming. They think the people that have died have missed it. and they, It's incomplete teaching. They, how do you teach all of Christian doctrine in a month? And, and so he reports on some of those things, but he says, man, they're doing really well. The church is thriving there. And that, that is what prompted Paul to write First Thessalonians. It's after he gets this report, he's going to correct some of the questions that have come in but, and answer some of the questions. But really, he just wants to encourage the church of what they're doing well. 
one, one commentator, and I just quoted what they said because I'm like, I can't word that any better. The Thessalonian church was a gathering of enthusiastic new believers. Within months, their courage, determination, eagerness, and devotion had become well-known. They still had much to learn about the Christian faith, for Paul could only instruct them for a short while, yet their courage in the face of persecution formed them into a church filled with extraordinary promise. What a beautiful description. And we're going to see this tone come out in First and Second Thessalonians. This tone of a loving father that is encouraging them for how they're walking with God. One of, um, one of the questions that came up with the elders is, why are we doing this book? Why are we doing these two books? And it, it not, not because they didn't want to. So it wasn't like, why are we doing those books? No, uh, legitimate question, because that's what we asked all along. And, and, and I explained that, well, we, we try to rotate between Old and New Testament. We try to rotate between narrative and epistles and poetry. We'll hit some prophecy in our next series a little bit. Um, because I want us as a church to have a full breadth of understanding of God's word. God's word is where the power is. But really, with First and Second Thessalonians... Paul's heart for them is the same as my heart for you. It, it is. So many of the things he says is what I want to say to you at Village. Of how you're walking with God and how you're showing love for God, how you're stepping out in faith for God. And so for me, this is a personal series of saying we're celebrating what God's doing. I want to celebrate what God has done at Village and what he's doing in your lives. Because you're all in my heart. You're in my heart. Thank you. And I want God's word to to encourage us in that way. So as we come to Thessalonians, we come to see some of those themes. This is one of Paul's earliest letters he wrote. Probably Galatians was before it, but the only one before that. Written in AD 50, 51. For those of you that have that blank that says date. AD 50, 51, while Paul is staying at Corinth. But the purpose, like I said, the purpose is to show how much he cares for his young church that he had planted and had to leave. To show them that he wasn't um, neglecting them, that he wasn't abandoning them, but that he still cared. And to then show them how to live a life pleasing for God, to fill in the gaps of everything he wanted to say and didn't get to say. And so this is his letter, and maybe you can think of it when your kids turn 18 or 22 or 40 and leave the home. Um, Let's go with earlier. (laughs) Um, Maybe you write a letter to them and say, this is what I want you to know. This is what I want you to remember. And that's a little bit of the tone of 1 Thessalonians. At times it feels like he's jumping around in topics, and that's because he's probably answering these questions that they sent through Timothy. And so some of this is answering questions that we don't have. And so we play Jeopardy a little bit and and hear the answer and try to figure out what the questions are. And, And even that, I think, is a huge lesson to say, don't be afraid to ask questions. Never be, the church of Thessalonica, that's all they had to grow is to ask Timothy, well, what about this? Or what about this? What do we do about this? And we should never be afraid to ask questions, whether it be of, of other believers or of pastors or elders or just digging into God's word. And Paul lovingly answers them, not annoyed in the slightest, because how else are you going to learn? And so that's the history of First 
in 2 Thessalonians. Just to end today, I want to just go through some of the points, the main point. And the main point, really, if we had to take the whole book, both books, and summarize it, I would summarize it in this way. Live in a manner that is pleasing to God here while eagerly looking for his sure return. Let me repeat that. Live in a manner that is pleasing to God here while eagerly looking for his sure return. Village, Jesus is coming back. And we should be eagerly, eagerly looking forward to that. We should be anticipating that. He's coming back. This world is not all there is, praise God. And God is redeeming creation back to himself through Jesus Christ. And so we eagerly await that, but that doesn't mean we check out. Because he has work for us to do here. And in fact, that should motivate us to live in a way, in a manner that is pleasing to God while here. And that's really two of the major themes Paul is going to keep talking to them about. Back on on verse 1, we talked about the author, we talked about the recipient, and then the greeting to the church of Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul liked the phrase in Christ, and this is one of the few places where he adds in God the Father with that. And it's always the idea of abiding in, of relying on, of being in relationship with. And so Paul here in his introduction says, I'm going to talk about what it means to be in relationship with God. I'm going to talk about what it means to live in God and in Christ, how to be connected to God and Jesus the Messiah. He also, I I I think this is a great way to distinguish their group of people in Thessalonica from the the emperor worship ones and the Greco-Roman pantheon worship ones because he's specifying this is the church because of God the Father, because of Jesus Christ. That's what makes you different. That's what makes you different is who empowers you, who originated it, who bought you with the price and redeemed you into his kingdom, who adopted you as sons and daughters. And so everything we do should be focused on him. And then at the end of verse 1 there, Again, a standard greeting from Paul, and it's so standard we can miss the theology of it that's so beautiful. Grace to you and peace. Grace to you and peace. And and he actually mixes a Greek greeting term and a Hebrew greeting term, but he's stating theology here. Grace, God's unmerited favor. And he starts there because we have nothing we bring to the equation except sin. And, and, and a deserving of death. And so his greeting always is the gospel. And he says, grace to you. That is God, when you don't deserve it, sending his son to die on the cross for you for your sins. That's the foundation of the church, what Jesus did for us on the cross. So he says, grace to you and peace. And peace always follows grace because because of the grace, because of the work on the cross, we can have peace with God and man. We can be reconciled to God and man. This is one phrase that is rich in theology. There is no other way to be reconciled to God and be in relationship with God unless Jesus pays the price on the cross. There's no other way. I don't care how many times you come to church. I don't care how many extra things you go to. I don't care how much you give. None of that gets you peace with God. It's only accepting the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. And Paul just starts with that beautiful theology. We have peace with God and man because of the grace that God has given us. So what are the themes? 
some of the sub-themes that we should look for as we talk about First and Second Thessalonians. The main theme I mentioned is live in a manner that is pleasing to God here while eagerly looking for his sure return. And I would say the, the key verse of the book, and there may be some debate on that, the key verse that we're going to use for the book is 1 Thessalonians 4.1. I put it in your notes as your, your verse to memorize this week. It'll come up again when we get there. But 1 Thessalonians 4.1, just turn over a couple pages. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. And he's saying, so up, up to this point, everything's been introduction and thanksgiving and just sharing his heart for them and how much he loves them. And finally, in chapter 4, he says, Finally then, brothers, I ask and I urge you that you take what you learned from us, received what you, what you heard from us about how to walk and how to please God and you've been doing it, but now do it more. Keep doing what you're doing is the message there. But that, several times he talks about pleasing God. This is just one of the places where it says, you've learned how to please God, now keep doing it. And that is his heart for his kids in the faith. Please God. Do it more and more. And village, like I said, that's my heart. You guys are pleasing to God in so many ways. So don't stop. Keep it up. Do it more. Let's double down on that because it pleases God. So some of the sub-themes, I have four of them. And some of these are sort of stepping into that conversation, like I said, where there's some questions and, and some elements that, that Paul wants them to work on. The first is exactly what I just said. It comes from the, the main theme. He's going to talk a lot about how to live a life pleasing to God. Not just say do it, but he's going to talk about how. And sometimes these instructions are going to come with two words and three words as staccato instructions because on a little scroll, he's trying to get as many of these instructions in as he can. But he's going to talk about what elements are part of pleasing God. Is that helpful for today? It's helpful to say, okay, God wants us to please him, but then he tells us how, which I really appreciate. Even if I don't always look at the instruction manual of the new tools or whatever I get, in this case, we have an instruction manual. And so he's going to deal with some of those things. He's going to be encouraging new believers in their faith as he does this. He's going to encourage them to be confident in their calling, in their election, in their salvation, that God chose them. He's also going to deal with many of the same issues that we deal with because we're human. He's going to deal with respect for authority. He's going to deal with laziness. And not to be idle. And they were possibly being idle because they were so waiting for Christ's return. They're like, I can quit my job. Come back, Jesus. Paul's like, no, 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 no. That's not where we're going with this. So he encourages them against laziness. He's going he's gonna to equip them to deal with sexuality and culture. Glad we don't have to deal with that today. Unless you go out the doors. And he's going to deal with that and equip them for that. He's going to equip them for dealing with people that hate Christianity and oppose them. These are some of the ways, things he's going to cover with how do you live a life pleasing to God. Second theme that we're going to see that's going to come up in both First and Second Thessalonians is Jesus' second coming. Jesus' second coming. That's another reason I wanted to do First and Second Thessalonians too. Um, we haven't talked about second coming in a long time. We haven't talked about end times in a, a long time. And so I think it's time. And so um, Jesus' second coming, he's going to give a hope there, an assurance that Jesus is still coming, that they haven't missed it. 
And this is the waiting part of what we're going to talk about, that we are pleasing God, but we're also waiting for his return. We talked about that in worship. Third theme that we're going to look at is how to minister to others in a God-pleasing way. How to minister to others in a God-pleasing way. Some of this might be a defense where Paul's defending his own ministry with these Jews saying, Paul's a jerk, he's a charlatan, he's just trying to get your money. But actually, I, I think we have to minimize that. I think Paul just loves them so much that he's showing us what ministry looks like. And he shows us what discipleship looks like. I think First and Second Thessalonians are some of the clearest examples of that we have from Paul's life. He shows us this relational ministry that cares for the people he's working with and, and basically says ministry means pouring yourself out for others. Ministry can't be at arm's length. Ministry is never on a time clock. Ministry is pouring our lives out for others, no matter what time of day it is, no matter what circumstances come up, because we love them. Because as a church, we're family. And Paul got that. He taught that. The Holy Spirit through him taught that. And so we're going to see faithful ministry, sensitive, loving ministry, and self-sacrificing ministry. And for any of you that are in ministry to our kids or adults or teachers or on the elder or deacon or deaconess board, those are things that have to just ooze out of us in ministry. Faithfulness, faithful to the word, faithful to the truth, love, sensitivity, but self-sacrifice. If any of those three are missing, we don't have effective ministry. Pretty much can guarantee it. And we're going to see that through the example of Paul, through his discipleship. We're going to see all over the place where Paul says, we showed you this and you imitated it. And now you're showing that to others and imitating it. That's what we talk about in discipleship, right? We teach people that they can teach other people. And so Paul is going to give us an example of that. In fact, we know later in history that some of the Thessalonians actually became traveling companions to Paul. In Acts 19, we see that in 20 and 27 And all kinds of names that I'm hesitant to pronounce, but Gaius and Aristarchus were people that came and and joined Paul. We had um, Gaius Gaius and Secundus and um, some others from some different towns. Those were from from Thessalonica. Um, And these people that he discipled and mentored ended up being partners in ministry that he took along with him. Last theme that we'll see woven throughout these books is perseverance and difficulties. Perseverance and difficulties. Now, this one you might miss. I actually didn't have this on my list and all the commentaries did. And I'm like, what? The the tone of the books are so upbeat that I'm like, that's not talking about difficulties. And then I read all the verses that they reference. I'm like, yeah, it's talking about difficulties all over the place. But in a positive attitude, in this upbeat attitude. And so it has to be one of our themes because it is there. A perseverance in difficulties. Don't be discouraged by opposition. Don't be discouraged by suffering. Don't be discouraged by trials. This church was birthed in the middle of opposition and it survived. And so Paul talks about it a lot and says, be strong. Be strong in the face of it. Don't give up. Four themes we're going to see And hopefully by thinking of those themes ahead of time, as we study each section, you can say, oh, this goes to this theme or this goes to this theme. And it gives you some hooks to hang what we're going to learn out of these books on. That's First and Second Thessalonians in a nutshell. That's sort of our whirlwind tour through the history. And I hope gets you a little excited about studying it. 
Because Paul's going to love on his people and show them how to live a life pleasing to God. And village, we can live lives pleasing to God if we follow the instructions of his word, if we walk with him. Let's pray. Lord God, as we journey into how to please you, help us to take this seriously. Help us to enjoy this. Blow us away by the fact that you care enough that you want us to please you. You, You're you're present enough that we can please you. You are not a hands-off God. You have not abandoned us, Lord, and we praise you for that. And so, Lord, I pray that as a church, we are a church pleasing to you, that we are doing the things you want us to do, that we are living the way you want us to live, that we are loving you the way you want us to love you. Lord, I pray that you would continue to transform and sanctify us as we study your word through this next series. Bless your word. Convict us, encourage us, form us into Christ-likeness. In your precious name, amen.